Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, at this point, we likely don't need to tell you that gut health is the gateway to optimal well-being. But gut health is personal and no two guts are the same, which is why we have board-certified internist and functional medicine practitioner, Dr. Vincent Pedre, back on the show to discuss everything you need to know about optimizing your own gut microbiome. From the best fermented foods to recovering after antibiotics to the exciting new updates in stool testing and fecal transplants. Vincent has undergone years of research and clinical experience as a functional gut health expert. And if you often feel overwhelmed by the lion's share of gut health advice, then this episode is for you. Keep listening to hear actionable tips and underrated daily hacks. Vincent, welcome back. Great to see you. Great to see you again. So it's been about a year since we talked and, you know, besides your incredible new book, The Gut Smart Protocol, I'm curious, what's new in your world in terms of all things gut health? Oh, and I think, um, you know, I've been in the, the gut health realm for over a decade now, um, actually like 15 years at least since I, I really dove into functional medicine. And over that time, the landscape has changed a lot. And I think one of the one of the big questions is, what is the right diet for your gut and for your microbiome? And I've certainly had experiences since the last time we spoke, which I think was I think was a bit ago. Um, I was in Africa right before the pandemic and had the opportunity to stay with the Hadza, the hunter-gatherers, uh, one of the, the few hunter-gatherer groups that still exist on earth that are living the way that their ancestors lived, hunting and gathering. And what was really fascinating about it and why I, I got so excited when I had an opportunity to be one of 10 people chosen to go on this trip is that they've studied the stool of the Hadza, they've done PCR, um, DNA shotgun analysis. And what they found is that their microbiome is incredibly diverse, really diverse. And there are probably a lot of factors there. And, but why is that important? You know, why, why would we even care that their microbiome is diverse as it is? And the reason is, that the Hadza have no diabetes, they have no heart disease, they have no dementia, they have no obesity, they have no cancer. So they don't, they're, they don't have the diseases that we associate with the modern Western world that maybe we think, and you know, there are a lot of things that, that have been good for humanity that have been discovered in medicine in the last hundred years. You know, even the discovery of antibiotics has prolonged lifespan. But even with that, we see the lifespan has not really cracked much longer than it's like 70, like low 70s in the US, hasn't really changed in, you know, half a century. And so, you know, what can we learn from the Hadza and how can we filter that into the way that we live our lives, you know, because we're not going to go out and become hunter-gatherers. Uh, but there are a lot of there. There are certain key takeaways that I talk about in my book, and this was one big influence in shifting. I think I think a shifting paradigm of 
how we understand what creates health and what creates a robust, diverse gut microbiome. And that is a key word, if anything, I want people to remember who would listen to this podcast, diversity, microbial diversity, that is the holy grail. Because the more diverse your gut microbiome is, and we can go into some studies that have looked at that, uh, the lower your inflammation is. And inflammation is the common denominator, the, the fuel behind every chronic degenerative disease out there. But I want to go back to, you know, a very uh, important uh, tenet of functional medicine, which is eat the rainbow. You know, I see that multicolored painting behind you and thinking, you know, that's like a representation of, of all the different colors. We live in Florida now. We're embracing the alligators. Yeah, I like it. And, and the coloring, you know, I think the colors here are always much brighter than, than in New York. And, and so we learn eat the rainbow and that's how you create microbial diversity. And yet there, my experiences and some studies that have come out are actually challenging that point of view that has been such a fundamental uh, foundational belief in functional medicine that you need to eat this wide variety of colors to get all of the antioxidants and um, phytonutrients uh, that we need in order to, to ensure that our microbiome is more diverse and robust. And yet, what do the Hadza eat? They eat root vegetables that they dig from the ground that are brown and white. They eat honey. And when I say honey, I mean, they're eating everything, the honeycomb, the honeybees, now that might sound a little gross, but the honeybees in Africa, the ones that, that live around the area in Tanzania where, where they, they migrate, it, they're tiny. They look like little flies. They don't look like bees the way that we think of them. Um, and actually, I went out hunting and foraging with them and ate a root vegetable that had just been freshly dug from the ground. And, and then they, they came over and offered me honey. And as they were pouring the honey, there were honeybees stuck in the honey and some pieces of honeycomb. And I was like, you know, I'm in Africa. I'm going to do as the Hadza do. And they also eat baobab fruit, which again is just browns and, and whites. So not a lot of... What's the fruit called? It's called a baobab. 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 Can you even... I've never heard of that. Is that even... B-A-B. It's... It's a really beautiful tree. It's the one that you associate with the Lion King in Africa. It's these beautiful trees that have these canopies. And they create this fruit that is very um, high in fiber. And they actually use it when they're weaning children off of breast milk. They, they mash up the inside of the baobab fruit and make it into a mash. So that's part of their diet along with hunting medium to, um, you know, small to medium-sized animals and wild berries that just grow in the bush. So it's not a very diverse diet, and yet they have an incredibly diverse gut microbiome, probably some parasites in there, who knows? And it got me thinking like, what is it really that creates diversity is if they can have diversity and they are not eating the rainbow of colors and vegetables. And I think there's certain factors that we can learn from them. They have not been exposed to antibiotics. 
So the antibiotics have not gone in there and decimated. I mean, the, the average person is on multiple rounds of antibiotics. I was on 20 plus rounds of antibiotics only during my teenage years. I, actually, preteen to teen, like age 10 all the way to 19, 20 plus rounds of antibiotics, two to three times per year. And that was just common practice. The other thing is, is that they are out in nature. They are touching the dirt. They are getting dirty. They are not using hand sanitizers. They are not using antibacterial soaps. And I think that is a, another really big factor that's kind of an onslaught on the gut of people in the Western world and why we're seeing that just IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, affects up to 11% of the world population. That is 896 million people worldwide suffering from a reversible gut health issue that has been triggered by things like overexposure to antibiotics, oversanitization, pesticides, all these things. So it the as I was writing this book, I started just having a shift in my thinking of what is it that creates robust wellness for us or well-being, I know as you as you talk about in your book. And part of it is that we need to get out into nature. You know, we need to expose ourselves to the elements, to hormetic stressors. Uh, I mean, if you can have a garden, like have an organic garden and get your hands dirty, like get your hands into the soil, like expose your microbiome to this diverse microbiome that's out there. And yes, still, you know, I want to reference some other studies that have been really influential in, in the way that I'm kind of thinking about gut health now um, from the point of view of what not only what's good for the gut, but what's going to increase microbial diversity and what's going to lower inflammation in the body. So around the time, so I was uh, researching and writing my book, Stanford University published a study. They took a small cohort of people. It was about 18 per study arm. 73% of them were women and it was a wide age group and they looked at what are the effects of a fiber-rich diet so eating lots of greens lots of prebiotic foods versus a high fermented foods diet and what does that mean because most people when you ask them well how many servings of vegetables do you get in a day the average answer sadly that i've heard as a doctor over the last 20 years is two maybe two to three servings, but ideally we should be getting five to eight servings per day. Even um, might even be higher, like nine servings per day. So in this study, the fiber rich group was asked to eat five to eight servings per day. And the fermented foods group, which was eating pre-intervention, they were eating about less than a half cup on average per day of fermented foods. They were asked to increase that to six cups per day. Now they had a four week ramp up because whenever you're increasing fiber or ferment, it's gonna be kind of rough on your body if you do it. You know, if you go from half a cup to suddenly having six cups per day, um, it's gonna be a major freak out in there in your, in your gut. So they had a four week ramp up and then a six weeks where they maintained at that high level. And they did a pre-test where they looked at microbial diversity and they looked at all the inflammatory markers. And then they did a post-test at the end of this 
10-week period. And actually, the, the full study was 17 weeks long because they had a, a ramp up and then the, the study period. And then they had a period where they allowed people to choose how they wanted to eat. And so, what they found in this short study was that surprisingly, again, so this ties back into the hot stuff, ties back into thinking about, you know, is it fiber? Is it eating the rainbow that's going to increase microbial diversity? And what they found was that it didn't. Now, it could be that the study wasn't long enough, that maybe we needed long, more time on a high fiber diet to start to see that part of the microbiome change. But in that short period, what they did find is that a high fermented foods diet increased microbial diversity in that group and lowered 19 inflammatory markers, including they were looking at intracellular cytokine activation. And they found that all those levels reduced. Now they decided to go back and look at the fiber rich group and see, well, are there differences within this group and are, are those differences, can we account for any changes in behavior of the immune system? And they actually were able to see that the fiber rich group, they could stratify it into a low diversity, medium diversity and a high diversity group within that, that group of fi fiber rich um, participants. And what they found was if at the lowest scale of diversity, in the fiber-rich group, they actually saw an increase immune, in immune activation. At the highest diversity, they saw the reverse. They saw a decrease in immune activation. So what do we conclude from that? You know, what it, I think what, what it's leading us to, and I can tie it into actually another study that was done looking at diet and mental health. What it's leading us to is that a fiber-rich diet does have some effect. It has an immunomodulatory role and it's going to have a more positive effect the more diverse your gut microbiome is at baseline. So we want to be, it's not, you know, I, I, I hate that they pitted fiber rich against fermented, high fermented. You know, I think there should have been a third group that maybe was a control where there was no diet intervention. So we could see these two against that as well. But I think, you know, it starts to drop some really great questions here because I don't think it's about fiber versus ferments. I think it's really about the combination of the two. And guess what? A year later, another group decided to do a study and they took 45 healthy volunteers. This was during the pandemic. So they had a little trouble recruiting enough people, but they got 45 people, divided them into two groups. It was a four-week study. They were measuring, um, and these were healthy people recruited. Average age was in the 30s, but they ranged from 18, I think, all the way to like in the mid-50s, early 60s. And they did a, they used a, a standardized stress score that they had everybody fill out this questionnaire before they started the intervention. And then they repeated that stress score at the end the only difference was, so here we did have a control group. The control group was just given, you know, general dietary advice, like, you know, reduce your sugar intake, avoid alcohol, like, you know, avoid processed foods. So they just got general advice. 
The other group, the intervention group, was told how much fiber to eat. They were asked to eat five to eight servings per day. They were asked to incorporate some grains into the diet, and they were also asked to, to incorporate two to three servings of fermented foods. So not as high as the Stanford study where they went to six servings, which is quite a lot, mostly yogurt and vegetable brine. So this group was only two to three servings, but it was matched with also increasing their fiber intake. And so, you know, it's a great comparison because now we have a study where we combined high fiber, increased fer fermented foods, and what impact does that have on the brain and on stress? And what they found was, I think you're not going to be surprised, that the fiber-rich group with the increase in fermented foods had a drop. It was a 32% drop in their stress score versus the placebo group, which only had a 17% drop. So they were almost double the other group. And that was only in a four-week period. So it, you know, and that, that ties into gut-brain connection and, you know, is the gut perhaps the key and the avenue to healing mental health disorders like depression, like anxiety. I mean, uh, worldwide, uh, depression is the most common mental health disorder affecting 11 to 15% of the world population. So that's, that's over a billion people worldwide suffering from a mental health issue that could be tied to the gut and the way that they're eating and the types of foods that they're choosing. And there was actually um, another study that came out in Nature in December of last year. Um, this came out obviously after I finished writing my book. And it was about looking at depression, depressed people. And this was a, a big study because they had a thousand, over a thousand participants and they were studying their gut microbiome and seeing are there differences in the gut microbiome in people who report depressive symptoms. And they found that there were. And some of the differences involved shifts in the types of bacteria that increase inflammation in the body. And actually there was one, it, it was interesting because the, the types of, uh, of bacteria that were involved in this, they almost sound like um, Disney villains. It was Ergothella and Hungatella and Celimonas and Lachnoclostridium. And one of them, for example, Hungatella produces a, a, a substance called trimethylamine, TMA. Now, TMA is a metabolic product that bacterial, certain bacteria in the gut will make when you eat L-carnitine, which is from sources like red meat, or phosphatidylcholine, which comes from shellfish, like lobster, you know, um, shrimp, all those shellfish. And so, Hungatella will create TMA. Now, TMA by itself is not problematic. What it, what's problematic is what happens when this bacterial product gets absorbed and goes into the portal circulation, which um, first runs the blood from the gut through the liver, where it gets metabolized. And depending on your genetic uniqueness, you may have a very high active enzyme called flavin monooxygenase or FM FMO. That FMO is going to take that tri TMA, trimethylamine, and it's going to turn it into TMAO, trimethylamine N-oxide. Now, I was researching this when I researched my book in relation to 
heart disease because trimethylamine converted TMAO increases the risk for heart attack and stroke by double, regardless of whether you have a good cholesterol or not. You could have the best cholesterol. If you have high TMAO, it's increasing your risk for stroke and heart attack independent. So that's a gut, heart, gut cardiovascular connection. What I didn't know, which they talked about in this study is how TMAO also increases risk for depression. Again, tied to the gut and 13 different bacterial taxa that they came up with that they saw are different between people. And then you start wondering, like, you know, can this be a, it can, is this a trait that we can transfer through the gut microbiome? So they took the stool from depressed humans, depressed people, and they did an experiment where they gave that stool. So they, um, they put it in with germ-free mice and germ-free mice will eat uh, poop. <laughs> it's a little gross, but they, they'll eat poop and they, and they make for a really great experiment because they start off with no gut microbiome and then you expose them to these bugs from the poop of depressed subjects in this, in this particular study. And then you watch their behavior. And what they found was that when they were exposed to the poop from these depressed subjects, that their behavior changed and they started exhibiting depression style behavior that I guess they have certain markers that they look at in mice. So, so then, you know, it's like, like, <laughs> so depression is a transferable trait through a fecal transplant. Well, it, it's fascinating. And without question, um, I think the gut brain connection is real. There's a lot of strong research suggesting that a lot of mental health issues are essentially a form of metabolic dysfunction. We've had Chris Palmer on the show. It's definitely an emerging area that is really exciting for people struggling. Um, I, I want to bring it back to the, the tribe for a moment. I think it's, it's fascinating. You mentioned they, they, they have their root vegetables, honey, the essentially fruit and berries, and then they have some animal-based foods. I'm curious, what percentage is it fruits and veggies versus meat? It's a good question, and it actually changes throughout the year depending on what's available, uh, you know, depending on the season. So honey is only available during a certain part of the year. And the berries also are only available through during certain parts of the year. The root vegetables, I think they're able to kind of keep year round. So, and the animal meat depends on whether they can find or they don't, you know, they're, they're out hunting. So I think it's, it's changing all the time. So it can be, you know, it could be 50, 50 plant animal, or it could be less depending on what's available. And they've looked at the amount of fiber that they take in just as a comparison. They typically eat 40 to 50 grams of fiber per day, whereas the average um, American eats around 10 to 15 grams of fiber. The recommendation is about 25 to 35 grams. And I'm assuming given their location, no fish. No fish. Just land animals and birds. Birds? Yeah, they hunt birds. So what type of... I mean, some of them are just these little birds, but it's 
it it was i mean these guys it was amazing how skilled of hunters they are and how quickly they move and how quickly they can spot something and they could shoot a little bird off of a tree with their bow and arrow which and and they don't look like they're like super built like strong and they gave us a bow and arrow to see or just the bow to see if we could pull the string back it was nearly impossible it is so tightly wound and then the the chief who was having us do that was laughing and then he takes it and he just goes like this <laughs> just with no what seems like no effort but they've probably they've built the back muscles that can just pull this back and he was teaching us how to use it but it was god for it not not being used to those types of movements i mean they're they are incredibly agile people and, and so you, you mentioned they're obviously in, in nature all the time and the, the antibiotics are are non-existent and antibiotics are a reality here unfortunately uh Myself, I had oral surgery about a year ago. Had to take antibiotics. Everyone, I think, I think you're absolutely right, and they're overprescribed. But sometimes they happen. And so, with that said, for someone who has to do a round or two of antibiotics, what do you recommend to make sure our guts properly recover? Yeah, I have um, a variety of viewpoints on that from, you know, if you know that you're going to go on antibiotics, I'm a big believer in taking uh, probiotic type things that can help protect the gut and the gut microbiome. One of them is a friendly yeast, Saccharomyces boulardii. Sac B. Yeah. And you can take that while you're on antibiotics and usually I you know I bridge it for much longer so if someone's on just a short course of antibiotics I'll have them take that for at least 30 days there's a lot of great studies on Saccharomyces boulardii and, and its effect on improving gut permeability on protecting the gut barrier on helping resolve um, food related diarrhea like uh, gastroenteritis um, I also will usually have someone take a probiotic post but I'm 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 also a big proponent of incorporating fermented foods after you're done with the antibiotics. And again, just tying it into how I started, the antibiotic is going to reduce microbial diversity. And what we know now is it takes six months to recover for your gut microbiome to recover from a five-day Z pack. So just five days of antibiotics takes six months to recover. For five days of Cipro, which is very commonly prescribed to women for urinary tract infections, it takes the gut 12 months to recover. So what about doxycycline, which is a common antibiotic? Same, same thing. So like 10 days would be five days, six months? Yeah. I mean, I mean, but just think when people are going on doxycycline, they're usually going on a longer course. It's two weeks, three weeks. Um, sometimes longer term, uh, some people are treated with low-dose doxycycline for acne. And so they're constantly <laughs> causing, uh, you know, messing up with their, their gut microbiome. So I, I'm really big proponent of, you know, 
not just you know incorporating the right supplements but also making sure that you're doing the right things in the diet to support your gut especially post antibiotics with ferments with bone broth with the right combination of vegetables so in terms of fermented foods what are some of your favorites i'm big on sauerkraut that's one of my and and i think you know it's a preference thing sauerkraut yogurt i don't do dairy so it's coconut yogurt for me um, those are some of the big ones. But, you know, I also sometimes will deviate from this. And it's something that I talk about in my book about intuitive eating and using your intuition to personalize your eating for yourself. Because sometimes your body may tell you that you need something and you don't know why logically it's telling you that. But your, body's, your body has a certain level of wisdom that needs to be listened to. And I did that, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm always willing to deviate from dogma. And even in my book, you know, it has a lot of uh, personalized gut healing plan. People can take a quiz and find out what their gut type is. And then based on that, it tells you how to eat. But I still talk a lot about developing that inner intuition. Because for example, during the pandemic, I went and um, stayed in Guatemala for two weeks. And at the end of the trip, I got incredibly sick, like super ill um, to the point where I was basically like running back and forth to the toilet and turned out that I got Giardia. Ooh. And by the time I got back to the US, I managed thankfully to get through the flights and uh, got back to New York, diagnosed myself, started on antibi antimicrobials. I had to take an antiparasitic. There was no choice. And, and like I said, look, you, I'm not anti-antibiotics. I'm just anti the over-prescribing of antibiotics and the overuse of antibiotics. But antibiotics used judiciously are really important. Um, I felt horrible. The minute I took my first doses, I started feeling better. And as I re was recovering from that, I got a ping. And this was the middle of winter when I don't ever touch dairy because... Dairy will make me more mucousy and more likely to catch viruses. And this is in the middle of the pandemic. And I just got a ping that I needed to drink kefir and it couldn't be coconut kefir or cashew milk, that it had to be real kefir, organic kefir from grass-fed cows. And that's what I did. And it actually, I got better really quickly with kefir and bone broth. That's amazing. You know, I think with regards to dairy, I'm curious what your view is. Mine's evolved to, you know, I think with dairy, you kind of know intuitively, does this work for me or not? And there's some people where they have a whiff of it, they get bloated. Other people can, can eat a pint of grass-fed yogurt and be totally fine. And, and that's how my view has evolved. You kind of you kind of know if dairy works for you or not. And obviously, if it does, opt for the grass fed. I think also that dairy could work for you at certain times of the year and at other times of the year, it's not going to work for you as well. So I've become a seasonal dairy eater because I do love cheese and I, I love certain dairy related uh, things like desserts and things. Um, but I avoid dairy fall, winter, spring, because after years of experimentation, I realize it increases my risk for getting a virus. And in the spring, it triggers allergies for me. 
So when I, when I cleaned out my diet and I stopped dairy in fall, winter, spring, stopped all those things um, and less likely to get sick when I'm around sick people. But in the summer, I'll let myself have dairy. And again, I think it's an important not just to know what your gut type is and what you can tolerate, but to also become really aware that not all symptoms that are being triggered by your gut are going to be in your gut. You know, for example, if you have dairy and you get a little bit congested after you have the dairy, but if you're not paying attention because you're not really tuned into your body, you don't have body awareness, you might think that, oh, I, you know, it's got congested. Maybe there's dust in the air or something. You're not, you're not creating the association. And it's so important to start to see those patterns because it can be super subtle, but that little shift in how your sinuses feel after you have dairy could be a sign that it's actually causing more damage than, than helping. And it's better to avoid it. 100%. It's one of the reasons why I'm such a big fan of mindfulness and meditation and yoga because those practices really help you tune in to your body. You don't hear a lot of people, you know, go from a 20 minute meditation or a 90 minute yoga class and run to McDonald's for a Big Mac. You just become more in tune. That was something I noticed uh, when I was in my yoga was kind of the bridge that got me through medical school, um, yoga, meditation, breath work through medical school and then through residency training as a doctor, which as you know, is, is pretty rough, you know, sometimes hundred plus hour weeks. And I noticed that, you know, with, you know, they've done studies where they've shown that sleep deprivation increases the cravings for sugar, for refined carbs, for processed foods. And it definitely happened to me where especially the more sleep deprived I was, the more I wanted sugar, like, bread, pizza, you know, really things. This is before I was aware of how all these things were damaging my body. But when I went to yoga class and I left the yoga class, all I craved was plant-based foods. I had no desire for refined carbs, for sugar. I needed to have something really clean. It was like my body, my, my body wisdom was speaking and I could hear it. And I knew exactly what I wanted in that moment. Yeah, it's funny. When I was practicing yoga, like every day in, in New York City, going to yoga classes every day, th there was a time I almost, well, I almost I experimented with being vegan and, and almost raw. I will say that it does not work for me. <laughs> it doesn't work for everyone. And I think that's a, that's a really important thing to think because right now we're in, we're in such an explosion of information and information sharing and we get these trends that some suddenly hit like keto vegan paleo vegetarian and you think well you know it sounds like it's good for everyone and that's one thing that i wanted to demystify in my book because uh, what i found over the years of working with gut patients is that no two guts are the same so how can their diets be the same they can't and you've got to personalize the approach because what I had over the years is these, you know, gut patients that were coming in with horrible gut health, but they were eating perfectly their kale salads, their raw foods, but not realizing how damaging 
that was for a gut that was disordered and leaky and microbiome that was um, dysbiotic. And it couldn't, their gut couldn't handle all of that raw food. You know, it, it's such an important point. You know, we talk about nutrition all the time here. There, we share so many different points of view, and it's all interesting. And people listening should take it in and 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 make some notes. But at the end of the day, none of these studies matter. It's all about the N of one, you, because we are all unique. Soak it all in, but you gotta really focus on you. There's no one size fits all, honestly. And, and I know you've, I'm sure you've interviewed a lot of different perspectives and they come in and it's like, this is the best thing, like the carnivore diet and this. And I, that's what I wanted to take in my book and say, no, there is no one size fits all. We need to stratify you by asking a certain set of questions that are going to help me understand based on gut related issues, gut, um, gut issues, but also gut related health issues where you stand in your gut health because it reverberates and it affects every system in the body. And then that can help us know what is the best way for you to eat. Because if you have severe gut issues, you just heard me talk about how great fermented foods are and how we should incorporating, um, be incorporating fermented foods into the diet. But if you have severe gut issues, you cannot have ferments. You're not ready for them. So I, I, I want to encourage everyone to pick up the book so they can go through all of the questions you have. But what, what are some of the questions if you can share a few so that folks can ask themselves, you know, give, give themselves a little bit of a reality check on how they're doing with their gut health? Yeah, I mean, some of them are really simple questions about the, the frequency and intensity of symptoms. Like, do you get heartburn? Do you um, suffer from constipation? Uh, do you get an upset stomach? you know, very gut centric symptoms. But then I'll ask, do you have allergies? Do you have asthma? Do you have autoimmune disease? Do you have Hashimoto's? Um, have you gained weight in the last couple of years and find that it's very difficult to lose weight? You know, these other questions, they sound like, wait a second, why are you asking me about this? This doesn't have anything to do with my gut, but actually it has everything to do with the gut and the gut microbiome. And they're all revealing to me based on the severity score whether you have leaky gut or not and how um, disordered your gut microbiome is and how much healing is going to need to happen in order to get you back to a really good place. And, and what's your take on frequency of bowel movements? At least daily. And it's got to be a satisfying full poop because you could be going daily but not emptying completely. And if that's the case, even though you're going daily, you're still constipated because you're retaining poop at least once a day. And some people, honestly, they can go that more than once a day. Some people have a very strong gastrocolic reflex when you eat and your stomach feels full, sends a signal to your rectum to empty. So some people can go up to three times a day after every meal, but at least once a day is important. And no, it's not normal to go two or three times per week only. And I see a lot of people out there who think that that's normal because that's the way their bodies have operated for years. So they just think, well, this, this must be the way that it works for everyone. Well, you, you, pooping is essential to detoxing the body. And the longer you retain your poop, the more likely that toxins that have been packaged and expelled and ready to be you know, moved out of your body are going to have more time to recirculate and get reabsorbed back into your body. 
I think it's such an important point. I go back to, to me 20 years ago and I was, you know, that bloated pooping two to three times a week. And I just thought it was normal. And fast forward today, I'm daily. And if I don't go daily and if I don't feel that emptying feeling, I don't feel good. It definitely feels like I need to get something out of me. It weighs you down. You know, it it weighs down your energy. Um, It can affect how your skin looks. Um, If you don't poop on a regular basis uh, for women, it can make them estrogen dominant. So they can get more breast tenderness around the cycles. They might be more predisposed to getting fibroids as they grow older. Um, But also just the way your skin looks, breaking out in acne. I've seen um, eczema improve just by getting someone to poop more regularly. And even asthma can can have, you know, ups and downs based on how much you're, you're pooping and detoxing. 100% I've personally seen, I will get a little bit of eczema if... I don't poop and it's rare because I generally am pretty regular, but if I don't, I'll notice that it's fascinating. So on the subject of poop, talk about the, the, the mice eating the poop and it feels like we've been talking about fecal transplants for a long time. Where are we on fecal transplants? Is this, is this really a thing? Officially, where we're at right now is that the FDA recognizes fecal transplants as a treatment for people with recalcitrant C. diff infection in the gut, where it's not responding to antibiotics. Now, what we've learned from that are some really interesting things. So, there was a case study reported where a mother had C. diff and she ended up having her daughter become the donor, the stool donor, so that she could recover from the C. diff. She wasn't responding to antibiotics. Now, the daughter had polycystic ovarian syndrome and insulin resistance. And remember what I said earlier about the mice getting the inheritable inheritable trait through the gut microbiome of depression, which you would think like that's not something that can be transferred. Well, in this case, The mother who was not pre-diabetic, was not insulin resistant after she got the stool transplant from the daughter, developed insulin resistance, blood sugar problems, metabolic issues, and started gaining weight. So then we realized, okay, well, you've got to screen people who are, if if you're getting stool donors for fecal transplant, you actually have to put them through a whole screening, make sure they don't have communicable disease, make sure they don't have metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, Uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, because these traits can be transferred through that. So one, where are we with fecal transplants? The the places that are doing them worldwide, you know, so there are clinics in the Bahamas, in London, they do very careful screening of the stool donors to make sure that they're healthy. So that's one, very important. There's also talk about autologous fecal transplant. And this may be something that becomes um, somewhat of a trend in the next coming years where when you're healthy, you donate some of your stool, get it um, freeze-dried, put into capsules, held for you, and you, you then take it when you have to go on antibiotics, when you have a traveler's diarrhea, but now you're giving yourself back your own stool. Now... This is assuming that you're healthy, you know, because most people 
have been exposed to multiple rounds of antibiotics, pesticides, stress, all the things that probably make your foundational gut microbiome. But it might be something that parents might want to start thinking about for their children when they're young and healthy, like having them, um, you know, bank their stool and have it for those cases where they can then take their own stool. But there's there's actually another company that uh, uh, creates uh, fecal transplant capsules and their target audience, and they've had a lot of successes in the autism community and using fecal transplants for autistic children, but through capsules, instead of having to do an enema and that whole complicated thing, you can take it in the form of freeze-dried um, stool and capsules. So it's, it's an evolving science. And the question is going to be, you know, are we going to allow this to evolve in this country? Are you going to have to go to Mexico, the Bahamas, uh, because the FDA, because it's, it's encapsulated, might want to classify it as a drug, which then creates a very large hurdle of research and gates that will, will be very difficult to get it approved because it would take a lot of money and a lot of research studies for that. So, but I think that, you know, for chronic gut issues like Crohn's, like inflammatory bowel disease, uh, there can be a benefit there. And there's a clinic in London and that also has a location in the Bahamas that does that specifically for people with those um, inflammatory colitis. And some people get better. Some people do get better with them. Do you recall the name of the clinic? Um, I think it's called the Tay House Clinic. Yeah, T-A-Y. And stool testing, I hear a lot of mixed results on that in terms of accuracy. What, what's your take on stool testing these days? I think it's all over the place. And just like any other test that we use in medicine, there's a certain level of sensitivity and specificity, or you can think of it in more simple terms as the accuracy of the test. Every test is a window into the body. And the way I see it is when we use tests, it's like if the person is, it's kind of like this interlay. And the way I see things is you have the person, you have their story. So we never want to discount the, the symptoms and the story that the person tells us as a health practitioner. Because what a lot of people do is they separate the person from the test results. And if the test results are normal, they look at the person and they tell them, well, everything's fine. But doctor, I'm tired. My joints are achy, blah, blah, blah. But your tests are fine. So you're okay. Come back in, in a year when, if you're still feeling the same, we'll do the test again. That's how a, a normal visit with a Western doctor often goes. But for me, a lot of it is like, well, did you do the right tests? Did you look in the right places? Maybe you, there are things you didn't test. But I always think that instead of the person in the test, you interlay them. So the test is like transparencies that you're putting on top of the person and you're integrating that information and you're seeing, well, the test says this. Does this make sense with what the person is presenting with? Or is there another test that I should look at because this person is feeling this way. I mean, there's so many ways to do stool analysis, uh, you know, 16S RNA, uh, which I think has certain limitations because they only look for a certain range 
of species. Um, I personally think shotgun DNA sequencing is better because it's going to look at everything there. But then the, the flip side of that is that it tells you everything. And then you're like, well, what does all this mean? Because we still don't fully understand. And this is what a lot of companies are looking for out there is, is there a microbial signature? Can we look at a microbial signature that is representative of leaky gut? Is there a microbial signature that is representative of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Is there a microbial signature that's connected to autoimmunity and autoimmune disease? You know, is there one for depression like that study that was done and published in Nature at the end of last year where they saw there were 13 taxa bacteria that were associated either high or low with depressed individuals? So I think we're, we're still understanding those pieces, but there's a lot more information that you can get from a stool study. You can look at inflammatory markers like calprotectin that ref, uh, reflects white blood cell inflammatory activity. You can look at few, um, eosinophilic protein X, which might be elevated if your eosinophils are high, which can happen if you have a parasite. You can look for parasites. You can look for yeast. You may or may not find them. I have a, 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 an acupuncturist friend who send stool analysis to Nigeria and Africa where they do very detailed microscopic analysis of the stool and sometimes find things that are missed in our normal stool studies. You know, there's, there's limitations to doing stool cultures. And certainly the, the DNA sequencing has, again, opened our world to seeing more than we could ever see before because in a stool culture, it was almost impossible to culture anaerobes, the bacteria that do not live off of oxygen, they're impossible to culture. But when you do DNA sequencing, then you can find their DNA. So it's, it's given us a view into this hidden world that's inside of us. But I think there's still a lot to learn from those tests. And I know there's a lot of direct-to-consumer tests that tell you, send us your stool and we're gonna tell you what you can eat. Um, and, and I've had patients do those tests and sometimes the information conflicts with what the patient knows is good or bad for them. You know, the study might say you can eat this food, but the patient knows when I eat this, I don't feel well. So, so I think there's still, you know, we have to be really careful about assigning too much dogma to these results because I think we're still evolving in our understanding of what they actually mean. So in terms of just analyzing the bacteria, are there certain providers you tend to recommend? I've switched over the years. And for example, I've used Genova Diagnostics for um, a long time. And then um, because of the way the reports are done and, and the breadth of the report and the information I get, um, I've, I've leaned now more towards Vibrant America and looked at their, their type of stool reporting. Um, there's also another lab, I think, called Diagnostic Solutions, um, the GI map. Uh, but that one has its limitations because it's 16S RNA. So it's not looking at the full breadth of what's inside of there. They're looking at what they think is important. But I honestly think with any of these, again, that's why you have to interlay the patient's story because you might do a stool test and it might sh not show that there is yeast in the stool, but the patient's story is very consistent with yeast overgrowth. So like any good doctor and dating back to William Osler, one of the, the fathers of modern medicine, you treat the patient 
not the test result. You always treat the patient. It's always important. You know, I think this patient-centered medicine, personalized medicine, that's a really important way to go. And that was something that I felt very conflicted with in when I was training in the hospital because they would talk about like, well, you know, 13% of people in study responded well to this medication. So we're going to put you on this medication because we think it's going to help you. And I'm like, wait, but, but what about this person? Is this, is it really right for them? Like, can we ask that? Cause maybe they're the 70 some percent or the 80 some percent where it doesn't work for the 50%, you know, what is their individuality and is it right for them? Or, you know, I would hear doctors say, well, this works for 55% of the people. I don't know why it's not working for you. Like, well, it's not personalized medicine. You're just like taking a research study and saying, this is you. I'm going to stamp this on your forehead, but you're not that study. You are you. You're, you're separate from that. And your result may not be the result they got in the study. So in closing, what are you excited about in the field of medicine? It's a big question. I mean, for one, I think personalization, which is what my book is about, is really identifying the uniqueness of each individual and meeting them where they're at and then helping them on their healing journey. Because if you're here, you have to start walking from here. If you're here, you go from here. So really meeting them where they're at. I think I'm also really excited about how much yoga, meditation, mindfulness, breath work has become more of our shared consciousness. It's like really percolated and it's no longer this thing that's out here, which is where it was in 1995 when at the age of 21 years old, I discovered breath work, meditation, and yoga. And I was doing it when a big part of the world was not, it was certainly not the in thing to do. And now it's become so in that I think now we can really have conversation about how this also is a modifier of how we are. And that's why I included it in my book, The Gut Smart Protocol, because you cannot out diet and you can out supplement a stressed out lifestyle. The stress also has to be addressed and you do everything, but it's not a, it's a non-negotiable. And I think you probably as, as someone who's been in, in wellness and well-being for so many years, understand that when you put that to the side and you think, well, I'm just going to do diet and I'll be good with my diet, but I don't have time to meditate. I don't have time to go do yoga. That you do feel that something starts to get lost. And when you bring it back, it creates more balance in your body. And we know this, it translates into a healthier gut microbiome, reduced inflammation in the body. And that's why it's such an integrated and important part of any healing plan. And I incorporated into the book with meditations and breath work that are specific for healing the gut and the gut as the avenue to heal the entire body. Love it, Vincent. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Again, thank you for having me.